we shall turn now to the Word of God, to the book of the Revelation, chapter 16. We shall read some verses just now from this chapter, Revelation, chapter 16, and from verse 8. And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and blasphemed the name of God which hath power over these plagues. And they repented not to give him glory. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain, and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and repented not of their deeds. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, and the way that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits, like frogs, come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils, working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. And may God bless to us this reading again of his holy word. We come to consider further something of the solemn events and the solemn workings of God as recorded by John as they were revealed to him as recorded in this chapter. The outpouring of God's wrath the outpouring of God's wrath upon this very earth that you and I live on. The world of men that you and I live among. God pouring out from heaven his wrath. And as we saw last Lord's Day, it is most justified wrath. We have the Witnesses, these two witnesses, declaring the justice, the perfections of divine justice in God's judgments upon men, because there is very good reason that God should do as he does. Now, as we progress through the book, it is always good to remind ourselves of the one who is being revealed to us, uh, his person, his power, his glory, and why indeed he's actually sending this revelation to the churches. Back in the chapter 1, we are reminded in verse 3 of the blessing that is promised. There is a blessing. It's not possible to read this book or to meditate upon it, to seek to apply its lessons and not experience God's blessing. That is promised. Verse 3, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of the prophecy, this prophecy, and keep or put into practice those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. John, 
to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and so on. Notice what here John writes to the seven churches, grace be unto you and peace. Now John is going to reveal, as it is revealed to him, many things that could well disturb men and women found in the midst of the terrible events that are recorded. You have men depicted, great men, the mighty men of the earth, and they're calling upon the rocks and the mountains to fall upon them, to hide them from the face of him who sitteth upon the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So there are terrible events that are going to terrify men. And they're going to be in panic when they realize they're now dealing with God's wrath. And yet, here's what John writes to the people of God, to the church of Christ, to the saints. Grace be unto you and peace. But this is no ordinary peace. This is not a mere calm of mind. This is real peace. Jesus said, my peace I give unto you. And you will see that this peace is uh, from him which is and was and which is to come. But it is also from the seven spirits or the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ. This is peace from the triune God, the divine trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, conveying grace, but conveying peace to the people of God, regardless of what is going to happen. They are to have good reason to be at peace in the midst of it all. And when we come to chapter 16, and we're confronted with the outpourings of divine wrath, we must understand while we read of men blaspheming the name of God, blaspheming heaven, blaspheming the people of God, in the midst of all that, the people of God have good reason to be at peace because their Savior and their Lord is on the throne. And the very judgments that are coming down upon the earth are from him. They are sent from his very throne. They come out of the holy of holies in heaven itself. Now, in considering for a little further these judgments, the outpourings of divine wrath, uh, we might remind ourselves, first of all, that they are divine and divinely ordered judgments. They don't happen by accident. This isn't when we see the effects upon nature, upon the environment and so on. We don't think to ourselves, like so many I hear speaking in these days, Mother Nature is very harsh. Mother Nature's keeping the rain back. Mother Nature's very cruel. And so on. 
These judgments are divinely ordered judgments, and they are divinely ordered for very good reasons. Last Lord's Day, we noted that those who are the recipients of these judgments, they are those who are guilty of blaspheming against God, the Creator, their Creator, their Sustainer, the God who has given his own Son to be a Savior for sinners. They've crucified him. They've done everything cruelly against God. They will not have him. They are raging against him. But where do these outpourings of wrath begin? The first angel in in verse 2 of this chapter poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell noisome and grievous sore upon the men that had the mark of the beast, and so on. You will see that they pour out, the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea. The first went and poured out his vial upon the earth. The second went and poured out his vial upon the sea. Now go back. We've looked at it in the past, but let's uh, look at it again and just refresh our minds as to why this should happen. Chapter 10 of Revelation, John sees a mighty angel, verse 5 of chapter 10, the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth. I remember what we noted in the past. There he stands and raised the mighty angel, the great covenant angel, and he stands with his foot upon the sea and his foot upon the land. Out of that very sea and out of that very land, there arise these two beasts that we've seen in the past. They don't arise as though they're out of control, that they are a law to themselves, that they can do as they like. The mighty angel declares that he is in control. Now, notice what happens when we come here to chapter 16. Where are the vials of wrath poured out? They're poured out on the, uh, on the very places, as it were, that these wicked beasts that are the agents of the dragon, the devil, from where they come, the judgments are poured out upon the land And upon the sea, the very uh, places from which all this wickedness and all this evil is proceeding. And that is not something that we can easily pass over or overlook. It is intentional. But in connection with that, Verse 5 of this chapter 16, the third angel pours out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters and they became blood. And this takes us immediately back in our minds to the plagues in Egypt. And it is worth remembering that every one of the ten plagues in Egypt was a plague, as it were, that... Uh, undermined and refuted, as it were, the power of the idol gods that the Egyptians worshipped. They uh, were polytheists. They worshipped a multitude of different gods. And when you see the plague of frogs, God is demonstrating his power against 
the God that was worshipped in uh, Egypt, the God, the woman with the uh, head like a frog was, of course, the goddess of birth. And you will see, I don't intend to, I could read out the list of all the various gods, but you might find it a little boring. But every one of the ten plagues was an attack. And it was God's demonstration of power against all these Egyptian gods. They were all combined, headed by Pharaoh, no doubt. He was the great sun god. But with all their combined power and force, and all their combined power in Egypt, they were all defeated. They could not, with all their combined power, resist the mighty power of the great I am, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now, in this chapter 16, we have again, as we've already seen, the power over humanity, the power throughout the world, the satanic power, the dragon and these beasts, and they are wor- the men and women and young people in the earth are devoting their worship to the beast. God steps in because the mighty angel has his foot upon the land and upon the sea. And he demonstrates his mighty power from the very throne against all these powers. But it is done for several reasons, and one notable reason is, as we Mention verse 5, I heard the angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast, and shalt be, because thou hast judged thus. You remember we were looking at it earlier in the week, in the book of Genesis, and the experience of Abraham. When Abraham is pleading before God for Sodom because Lot was there, what did God, what did Abraham say to God? Shall not the judge of all the earth, the judge, not judges, the judge, one judge, the judge of all the earth who will judge every last creature, who will judge every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, the judge of all the earth. We have to meet that judge. Young people think of that. We're all going to meet that judge. And what does Abraham say of him? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He will do right. The problem is we don't believe it. And I do feel again and again when I see certain situations and I observe certain scenarios, I come to the conclusion even Christians don't believe that God does what's right. In this chapter 16, the angel says, Thou hast judged thus. It has pleased thee to judge this way. Why? For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. Thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. 
I heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. Now, as I said, and when we're going through the book of the Revelation, it is as though we see the same developments from a different angle. And when we go back to the chapter 5, we have there the saints' prayers brought before us. Chapter 5, the vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints in verse 8. The vials are full of odors, a scent, a sweet smell in heaven. What is it that is so sweet in heaven? That is that where perfumes the very atmosphere of heaven, the prayers of saints. Now you might think, well, some of the prayers of some of the saints are pretty poor. But you see, every prayer of every child of God comes through Jesus Christ. It ascends into the presence of God with the intercession of Christ. And so those prayers are very precious to God and very precious in heaven. Now later on then these prayers are mentioned again. You have the saints' prayers in chapter 8 then. The angel that stood at the altar, chapter 8, and the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar which were before the throne. Incense is offered. The angel at the altar offers up uh, the prayers of the saints. Their prayers upon the golden altar which was before the throne. So there is these, there are these references to the prayers of the saints in heaven. They're not forgotten. They're not wasted. They are actually even preserved. The psalmist asked God to put his tears into his bottle that they would be remembered in God's presence. Now, we have again the prayers of the saints mentioned and uh, Jesus himself made reference to them whenever he was ministering in this world. And he said, as the apostles recorded, shall not God avenge Shall not God avenge? What's he going to now say God will avenge? Shall not God avenge his own elect? His own elect who cry unto him day and night. God will avenge. He will avenge the prayers and the cries and the sufferings of his saints and his servants. And I don't believe that very often we take these things seriously. What do we read here? The angel says, Thou hast judged us. True and righteous are thy judgments. What judgments? God is avenging his sins. The blood of his sins and his prophets. Who cry unto him from the altar. 
as we've already noted in the past. Now there is a very important lesson that Jesus taught during his earthly ministry. More than one occasion he pointed out and drew attention to the solemn fact. God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. He's not the God of the dead, but he's the God of the living. And the saints and the prophets of the Lord are alive in his presence. And John has recorded the martyrs and the saints crying from under the altar. And they are told they must wait because they are yet to have their numbers increased as others will join them. But God is the God of the living. His living saints, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, he's very much alive in the presence of God. He wept many tears because of the disobedience and the rebellion of a people whose foreheads were as Adam and stone. And God hears all the cries and all the petitions. He has kept the tears of his saints and his servants before him. And he will avenge. Now, as I said, many people just ignore that. You know as well as I do that you will see again and again a place of worship today. And you wonder what's gone wrong. What has happened? You wonder why are the doors closing? Why is the gospel message being silenced? What is happening? People forget. God is the God of the living. And when he takes away some of his servants from this world, they're not dead. They're alive in his presence. And they're not silent. They are speaking in his presence. They are crying as it were. They join those that cry from under the altar. And because God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, what does he do? Does he just say, well, you don't need to worry now, you're in heaven. It's all past. That's what you hear. Well, past, you're in glory now. You can rejoice. Forget about it. God is a God of divine justice. Can it be less than that? And the angel says, Thou hast judged thus. Or oh, the judgment mightn't be very pleasant in its experience. It is just nevertheless. And I have seen in more than one occasion, and I have people, I remember people, I'm not going to mention the congregation or the part of Scotland, but I can remember as things were just going down, down, down. And the old people saying, Mr. Atten, we know why. It's because of the way they treated their minister when they had him. 
And now we're being punished. Now we're being judged. Because God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And their voices who've been persecuted, who've been put to death, who've been martyred, who've been uh, in this world ridiculed and their ministries rejected and so on. God does what is right. And he can remove the blessing that once he gave. That is solemn. I, I wish at times that the Lord's people would lay to heart these things much more seriously than they do. And they will even almost try to fight against it. They will recognize God is sending judgments. But we're not going to accept them. We're just going to go on and resist it. Here's the angel saying when these judgments are poured out, they are perfectly justified because they are the answer to the cries and the groans and the sighs and the tears of the godly in the past who are alive in the presence of God. And he's answering to their cry. Now then, as we move on to see the pouring out of these vials of wrath. We're not told anything as to the quantity of the wrath. We're not told any. There's no description of the vials, how large they are, what capacity they have to contain the wrath of God. What we are to understand is it is God's wrath. And it is poured out. It descends from above. Now we're given no indication as to how long it takes the angel to pour the wrath out. We're not told he pours it out for an hour. Or he pours it out for a year. Or he pours it out for ten years. We're just informed it is poured out upon the earth. It is poured out in such a way that men are suffering under its power. And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun. And power was given unto him to, to, to scorch men with fire. Now we were singing in the Psalm 148 of the divine control that God has over all his creation, including the very planets, the very trees, the very birds of the air. Isn't that wonderful that God controls the very birds? Look at Elijah. God commanded a wild bird to Feed Elijah, his servant. He's in control of all these things. And he is in control of the very planets and the sun. And the angel poured out his vial of wrath upon the sun. Why would he do that? What sin is the sun committing? What crime is the son his own creation guilty of? He pours out his vial of wrath upon the son so that the son that once has been such a blessing now becomes a source of divine wrath. Now, you go back to the plagues in Egypt and you find that there, in the experience of Moses, uh, several times throughout the book of Exodus, when the plagues are descending upon the Egyptians, it is interesting how for all hundreds of years, 
God actually kept his own people in the particular place where Joseph settled them. When Jacob and his family came down into Egypt, Joseph told his brethren before even Jacob came down, you will dwell near me and you will dwell in the land of Goshen as we are going to be. And when Pharaoh heard that Joseph's father and brethren had come, he said, the land is before you. Joseph, you choose where they'll be. Goshen. The land of Goshen was a very fertile part of Egypt. It was said to be the the most fertile of Egypt because God had raised Joseph to such eminence, Joseph was able to direct his own family, the future uh, covenant people, to Goshen to enjoy all uh, the favors of God in Goshen. Now, when we come to the days when God is going to deliver the children of Israel, Uh, Out of Egyptian bondage, we find that during the plagues, God stayed them. They didn't touch Goshen. And God put a difference. It's recorded several times. God remembered his covenant in chapter 6, verse 5. I have remembered my covenant. God doesn't forget anything, of course. But he's saying, I've remembered my covenant, what I promised Abraham, what I promised Isaac and Jacob. He says, I've remembered it, and now I'm going to arise, and I'm going to fulfill that covenant. And uh, uh, you see that when this begins to happen, God put a difference between the Hebrews and the Egyptians. God severed between them. You have in verse 22 of chapter 8, I will sever in that day the land of Goshen in which my people dwell. And no swarms of flies shall be there. My you try containing swarms of flies. But God was in control. He said, the flies will not go to Goshen. That's where my people are. Thou mayest know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. And I will put a division between my my people and thy people. Tomorrow shall this sign be again. In chapter 9, verse 4, the Lord will sever between the cattle of Israel and the cattle of Egypt and so on. And again in verse 26 uh, of that same chapter, only in the land of Goshen where the children of Israel were, there was no heel and so on. So God made that division, protecting and keeping his people when all around them the judgments of God are falling on Egypt. Now when we come to these outpourings of divine wrath, We've already seen the marking for the protection of the people of God. And here when the judgment is poured, the vial of wrath is poured upon the sun, men were scorched with it, and they blasphemed God. When we go back to the book of Psalms, There we have, and it's a well-known psalm, Psalm 121. We read there, uh, verse 4 of Psalm 121, Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is thy keeper. The Lord is thy shade. Upon thy right hand the sun shall not smite thee. By day, nor the moon by night, the sun shall not smite thee. 
Oh, the sun is going to smite godless men and women, worshippers of the beast, that have the mark of the beast upon them, that devote themselves to the service of the beast and the false prophet under the power of the dragon. But isn't it amazing? The very beginning, before John reveals all the terrible things that will happen, he conveys the message of peace. Even when the vial of wrath is poured upon the sun, the sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. Because I am thy shield. The Egyptians are exposed. But I am thy shield. I will protect thee. I will keep thee. Isn't that something? God remembers his covenant. And he will not allow his poor people dependent on him to suffer as his enemies do. We read, they blasphemed, they were scorched with great heat, and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues, and they repented not to give him glory. And this, of course, again, gives us some knowledge as to the reason and the purpose for these judgments, these plagues. Last week we emphasized the trumpet sounding as warnings. That's how God operates. You go back uh, to the uh, book of Isaiah and there you will see that, uh, well, there's a psalm, of course, that we're very often singing from. We may look at it First Psalm 107, and here you see how men respond when God sends his judgments, and it is an indication as to why he actually does it. Psalm 107, and repeatedly throughout that Psalm, verse 6, you have it. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them out of their distresses. And he led them forth by the right way. Notice, they cried unto the Lord in their trouble. They didn't blaspheme. They cried unto the Lord in their trouble. Verse 13. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble. And he saved them out of their distresses. They were brought low and they had no help, but they cried unto the Lord in their trouble. Verse 19, Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saveth them out of their distresses. And again, verse 28, Then they cry unto the Lord, and so on. So why does God send these things? That man might repent of them, of their sins. Here, instead of repenting, they blasphemed. Instead of humbling themselves under the hand of God, they uh, instead blasphemed his name and they blasphemed heaven. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 26, God, way back in the days of Moses, told the Hebrew people something they were never to forget. It was an indication as to the character and the workings of God. In Leviticus chapter 26, God says, for example, verse 17 to get the connection, Leviticus 26, verse 17, I will set my face against you, 
and ye shall be slain before your enemies. They that hate you shall reign over you, and ye shall flee when none pursueth you. And if ye will yet for all this, ye will not yet for all this hearken unto me. Then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. Verse 21 of the same chapter. If ye walk contrary unto me and will not hearken unto me, I will bring seven times more plagues. Verse 23. And if ye will not be reformed by me in these things, but will walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary unto you and will punish you yet seven times more for your sins. Verse 27. And if ye will not for all this hearken unto me, but walk contrary unto me, then I will walk contrary unto you also in fury, and I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. What's God saying? I will warn you. I will send you chastisement. I will send you affliction to call you to repentance, to call you to return unto me. I will send you warnings. I will send you measured afflictions. And if you don't listen, and if you don't take warning, I'll increase it seven times. That's what God was saying. We do not trifle with God. Young people, learn this lesson well. You may find yourself at times and your conscience is telling you that some event, some happening, some scenario, some circumstance, and the voice of conscience is saying to you, God is speaking to me. I fear this is from the Lord. This is a chastisement from his hand. And maybe there's a degree of softening. An amount of conviction. Almost resolving, I'm going to repent. I need to turn to the Lord. But then what happens? Like Pharaoh, once the plague is lifted, back to square one. What does God say? You carry on behaving that way. I'll send seven times more. You disregard me. You walk country to me. I'm going to make the rod heavier. I'm going to send even greater chastisements. You see, we do not trifle with God because he's the judge of all the earth. And he will always do what is right. And we are told plainly that God chastises every son that he takes. And if you're without chastisement, then are ye bastards and not sons. So when my dear friend, you and I ever become conscious or ever feel, God is chastising me. We better repent immediately. And we better humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God because he has the power. And he gives the warning. Don't listen to me. Listen to somebody else. Don't listen to me. And I will chastise you even more. And here are men 
blaspheming, refusing to repent, refusing to bow to the mighty power of God. God is sending them judgments that only he can send. Imagine, with all their scientific knowledge, can they go along and just as they go to the water tap in the kitchen and turn the water off, we've had enough. Do they go and turn the heat controls down? We want the sun not just to torment us, we don't want it to be hurting us, to be paining us. They have to recognize we have nothing to do with it. We can groan and we can complain and we can blaspheme, but we can't alter one thing because God's in control. And then you'll see that a vial in verse 10 is poured out upon the seat of the beast. The seat of the beast has been given to him, as we've already seen in the earlier chapters, by the dragon. Now we could easily come to the conclusion, well, that vial of wrath is poured out upon such a seat because it's the seat of government controlling the evil and all the immorality and all the wickedness in society. But it is poured out to bring forth a particular judgment. What is it? Judgment of darkness, which again takes us back to the plagues in Egypt. What happened? The darkness was in Egypt, but in Goshen, the Hebrews had light in their dwellings. Everywhere, the Egyptians couldn't move for three days. They couldn't do anything. Utter darkness. It was a darkness, we we're told, that could be felt. Yet the Hebrews, they had light in their dwellings. Now here is darkness. The kingdom was full of darkness. Full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues for pain. It is a darkness that is producing pain and anguish. Now what kind of darkness is it? Is it just the darkness that we experience when the sun goes down and night comes on? Is that what We're talking about, this is a darkness of judgment. When we go back to the chapter that we read, out of Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, we're told there of one of the means of judgment that God uses to send upon men. And in particular, those who've had the gospel and those who reject it. We are told of the one, the wicked, who's revealed and uh, he's taking the place and the minds of men and the activities of men, the lives of men, the place of God. He makes great, bold claims That he is God. Verse 9 of 2 Thessalonians 2, him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. Another description of the beast. And the seat of this beast, there is a vial of wrath poured upon it. What happens, those who receive not, verse 10, the love of the truth that they might be saved. Or they reject the saving truth of the gospel. That's what they they are guilty of. For this cause, note those words. For this cause. 
for this cause. What cause? What have men done to cause God to do what he does? God shall send them strong delusion. Why does he do it? For what cause? They receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. That they might be saved. The truth that is saving truth, the gospel that is a saving gospel is rejected. They do not want to be saved. There is a where saying to God, we don't want to be saved. We don't want your salvation. We don't want to receive the truth. We reject it. We turn our backs on it. We oppose it. For this cause. Young people, you've heard the gospel from your childhood. Whatever you do, tremble lest you would reject it. Because do you know what can happen? For this cause, God shall send them strong delusion. And they shall believe a lie. They will not believe the gospel, but they will believe a lie. Have you ever seen people in adult years What are they doing now? They're believing a lie. They rejected the gospel. They grew up with it. They grew up in a Christian home. They grew up reading the Bible. They grew up going to the means of grace. They grew up under the watchful care of parents who were concerned for their souls. But they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, oh, that it would sink in. That it would sink in. God shall send them strong delusion. And it will be so strong that they will turn to the lie and they'll believe that and they'll put their trust in the lie that they might be damned because God will not damn anyone unjustly. He will not condemn anyone unjustly. He's the judge of all the earth and he will do right. When he sends strong delusion, he's doing right. And it brings home to you and I how terrible a crime against God it really is to reject the gospel and reject God's truth and the saving gospel. You believe not the truth who believed not the truth. Do you know people around today who had the truth? They didn't believe it. And they still don't believe it. And you can understand what has happened. How could he, how could she possibly turn to that and believe it? The answer lies here. And when we're in chapter 16 of Revelation, seeing these judgments, it's because men and society, high and low, have turned their back on God and rejected the gospel and descending judgments. And what do they do? Do they repent? God has warned them with the trumpets, a third of the earth, a third of the sea, a third of men is affected. Neither comes the full pouring out of wrath. 
They've been warned. They wouldn't repent. Now seven times more plagues fall upon them and they blaspheme. That's in the heart of man. Young people, I plead with you, whatever you do, do not reject the gospel. May God bless his word. Let us pray. Gracious and eternal God, bless thy truth, however solemn it is. Enable us to understand we are but creatures of the dust. And we have to do with thee, the great God of eternity who controls every element, every part, every atom of this universe and who will judge and punish sin. May we tremble that we would bring thy judgments upon ourselves either in time or in the great eternity. O do thou solemnize us that we would be repenting of our sins, fleeing to the fountain open. Hear us then, pardon us, receive us, For Christ's sake, amen.